Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University podcast. My name is Emil Kalinowski and I'm coming to you over the networks of iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. You'll be able to interact with the show on our YouTube simulcast where you can post questions in the comments section below the video and I will endeavor to answer them. However, sometimes I may fail you. I will find myself at the clearing at the end of the path with no answer. And that is when I will reach out to the guru, the master, the sensei of the Euro Dollar Dojo, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. Good morning, Jeff. Morning, Emil. Let's, let's get to people's questions. I know there are a lot of them. If this is Euro Dollar University, then I am John Bluto Blutarski, maintaining a grade point average of 0.0 for the following questions. Let's start out with the very first one. And this one comes from Jeffrey Birchfield, all the way from March 24th of this year. There it is. Will two trillion in new US treasuries make a dent in the collateral shortage? So the deficit spending, Jeff, good news for a collateral shortage? Yeah, in a way it is, except that we don't know how they'll be distributed, right? I mean, if, if those two trillion in treasuries are largely, you know, hoarded up and bought by primary dealers, end up sitting in just their inventories and not really, you know, the dealers aren't willing to redistribute them to the rest of the system, then it doesn't really make a difference. You know, it's the old stock versus flow argument. And stock versus flow doesn't apply just to currency and money. It applies, unfortunately, to the collateral of space too. So if, if part of the collateral shortage, or, which I believe is true, is how you know participants in the repo markets, especially risky participants, hedge funds, whatever they may be, whatever types of vehicles, um, it could be just you know financial firms and banks in other parts of the world, if they are you know viewed by the de by these dealers for buying up these new treasuries as too risky to even you know uh, do some securities lending and collateral transformations, then it doesn't help um, satiate the, the, the demand for good collateral that exists far and wide. So, you know, again, the system is set up sort of as a funnel where everything is pushed out into the banking system and only a, a very small subset of the banking system first with the idea, the hopes that then the primary dealers then start to, 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 to distribute all of these resources, whether it's collateral or cash, to the rest of the system, sort of like, you know, a farmer who is watering his field. If you only water one small segment of the field and hope that it dribbles out to the rest of it, do you expect to have a full crop? You know, it's, it's a problem if there's a banking issue where the redistribution function is impaired more, even as much or more so than the stock issue. I just happened to take a look at the New York Fed's latest data through the end of May for primary dealers and their net position in U.S. Treasuries. And there's been a kind of an uptick through the end of May. Uh, despite the rising stock market, you would think things would be settling down. But there has been an uptick, kind of a, if you look at the last uh, four weeks and you sum it up, it's not quite as bad as what we saw in March, but it's tens of billions of dollars in extra treasuries that they've been adding to their books. To your point, they're not distributing them. 
Yeah, so, and, and the, just before we go to the next question, the other issue here is the big silos, as they're called, the insurance companies and pension funds, those who are actually in, actively involved in securities lending. Those are the source for you know, most people where most of the securities transformation in, in the securities lending business comes from are these big insurance companies and pension funds. If after what happened in March causes them to say, you know, we're, we're reevaluating our entire securities lending paradigm, that wouldn't matter how many more treasuries, you know, the, the insurance companies buy, which they're going to be buying a lot more as they are, given the way things are going. If they're not willing to lend them either, then it doesn't help the rest of the system that has depended upon transformation and borrowing and relending and repledging and all that wonderful stuff. Second question comes from Edgar Suarez. And Jeff, you often say that the banking system actually fixed itself right during GFC one and kind of when you're saying that you don't expect to see another banking crisis like we saw in GFC one. Uh, so the question here is, what do you mean by the banking system actually fixed itself starting right during GFC one by increasingly opting out of the dollar system? Well, the, the banks began to take fewer risks. The paradigm shifted from grow, 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 bigger, 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 more stupid, more stupid, more stupid to something more prudent and sensical. And so that's what, I mean, the banks stopped doing what they were doing before August of 2007, reevaluated everything. They brought in a bunch of lawyers and accountants and senior management levels to finally start paying attention to what had been going on through this bubble period. And they rearranged how they, how they structure things, their compliance things. Regulations have definitely played a role in this reassessment, although those came in later. This behavioral shift started almost from the very outset of the crisis. And what that did was banks became less banks. They became less of what they used to be. They stopped doing the things that they used to be. Now, which, again, as I say, we applaud the, that kind of behavior because what they used to do was stupid, insane, ridiculous, you know, subprime mortgage, ninja loans, all those kinds of things. And it was, it was a global phenomenon. So that was, a, that was something that we should applaud, except for the fact that this globalized economy that had, had, had raised itself on the euro dollar system absolutely required banks to be stupid and insane in order to function. So we give up on the banks and the banks start acting more responsibly, which means we don't have the economic growth and globalization because the banks acting irresponsibly were the way that we financed all of that globalization and growth. And so the banking system fixed itself. And then in doing so, yeah, individual banks are fortified. Their, their balance sheets are in much better shape. They don't have the same kinds of ridiculous holes in them that they hit that they found out they had in 2007 and 2008. But in doing so, they've left the global economy, especially at the margins, in the lurch. We're left without all of the monetary resources that, need, that we need for this pre-crisis paradigm to go back to the way it used to be. So banks, are they've fixed themselves in the sense they're not individually vulnerable to the same types of problems that happened in GFC 1, but the system remains vulnerable to the lack of banking resources that are not being poured into it. It's, uh, it's sort of funny, it's, it's uh, that the banks are no longer being stupid, but our global economy runs on stupid, so it's a big problem, it's catch-22. Let me just show visually what we're talking about, that they increasingly opted out of the system. Let me just show very quickly. 
Here is from the late 1970s all the way through the end of last year, the BIS uh, report for cross-border claims for banks. And this is what Jeff means by they increasingly opted out of being stupid. You can see this is a logarithmic scale. They were growing exponentially. And then right around 2007, 2008, they said, no, thank you. We don't want to do this anymore. And uh, we can take a look at that as well. Uh, in all manner of accounts like derivatives as well, on a global scale or just in the United States. They have opted out. Our next questions, two questions, they cover the same idea. Um, and it comes from Mark M. Sousa, April 5th, 2020. And this is the idea of foreign central banks have a lot of reserves. And that's supposed to be good news, Jeff. They have a lot of reserves, but you often write, that's a problem. So the question here from Mark is, other countries cannot sell the US treasuries because it creates problems. But then you, Jeff, don't say which problems they are. And let me go to the next page. This one is from Captain M. Majid 84. Forgive me for mispronouncing that. Central bank foreign reserves are not as liquid as they seem. Is the idea of holding large reserves useless? So the whole idea, Jeff, these foreign central banks, they have a lot of reserves. That's great news. No, you say. Yeah, and it goes back to why are they holding so many reserves? And that's the issue. And the issue is, and what it really revolves around is, how do those reserves end up in the foreign central bank's hands to begin with? So it's, it's, it's what I called the nightmare scenario back in 2015 when associated with China. What it says is the more reserves you hold, that's not an issue of policy. It's not like the central bank says, I'm going to build up a huge stockpile because I'm worried about the dollar system. It's, it's by accident. They have a bigger dollar flow going into the country. And as a consequence, an indirect accidental consequence to that dollar flow under normal circumstances, a lot of it gets redirected into the central bank hands, which it then invests as quote unquote foreign reserves into US treasuries because it wants to earn some interest on these reserves. So it's building up its reserves based on what's happening in the euro dollar system, the globalized economy, which then tells us the more reserves the central bank has built up, the bigger its potential dollar problem must be because it has all of these dollars flowing onshore. What happens if those dollars suddenly don't flow onshore? If you have a big flow of dollars going in and all of a sudden there's no dollars coming in, then you must have a big dollar shortage, which you have to deal with. And how do you deal with that dollar shortage? Well, you start to mobilize reserves, selling U.S. treasuries. Now, right off the bat, what happens when you start selling U.S. treasuries? You're basically advertising to the same banks who are denying your local banks their normal access to euro dollar funding that, hey, guess what? We're having problems. Not only do we have a big dollar shortage need, I'm telling the world that we have a big problem that's causing so much issues, so much local dollar disruption in our markets, that the central bank and the government have to combine and intervene in that market. It's the same kind of thing as, going, as banks going to the discount window. You know, the argument is why don't, why don't banks just go right to the discount? It's there, it's useful supposedly. So why don't banks, because they know once you go to the discount window, once that happens, that advertises to the entire marketplace, something must be wrong, something we're not maybe aware of, 
something's wrong with this bank. Now take that type of stigma and apply it in the same respect to this massive dollar problem where you're mobilizing U.S. Treasuries. What you're saying is, we've got a big problem. And if the country happens to have a whole lot of U.S. Treasuries, a lot of reserves, like China or Brazil, what that says is, we've got an enormous dollar problem. And the, 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 the end of the discussion is that mobilizing reserves doesn't actually substitute. It's a poor substitute for the dynamic dollar resources that the banking system actually supplies on a normal basis. So what you have is this massive problem, this illiquidity problem from the normal operations of, of the euro dollar system that the, the selling reserves and, and funneling them out using all these kinds of arcane swaps as most uh, central banks do, trying to influence behavior and do all these other, it's not a direct substitute for lost euro dollar funding. So it's really a combination of all those things. You're advertising to the market that's already apprehensive that we have a problem and a big problem and we're not gonna be able to fix it because we're central bank bureaucracies. We don't actually do all of the things that markets actually do. Even I fall into the trap when I shouldn't is uh, of putting central banks central. It never occurred to me as you explained it at the beginning of your answer that the central banks are not doing this purposefully. They're bystanders and the reserves are building up as a consequence of what other banks in the economy is doing widely. It's amazing that... Uh, yeah, I mean, about China that? provides a really good example of that because most of their reserves built up because they were pegging the yuan to the dollar. And so they were in the local marketplace taking in all of these dollars as they showed up on shore and converting them into yuan locally. So they were, again, it wasn't they're building up a currency stash as insurance against the dollar shortage. They were just doing the regular course of business. And the more dollars that came on shore, incidentally, for reasons that have nothing to do with central bank policy, the larger their reserves grew. And so again, it's, if you have this big dollar stash, it's not insurance, it's an accident. It's an accident because you have this big dollar problem potentially. Should the dollar system start to go against you, you're screwed. What do you do? And that's what we saw. I mean, China, they spent, what, almost a trillion in their uh, reserve pile. And it, 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 didn't, it didn't actually solve the problem, of course. And in fact, the, the yuan devalued tremendously and it continues to do so. We implicitly put central banks central. And I believe our next question does that as well. I think this will be an easy answer. It's from Toja, May 1st. Are interbank dollar settlements possible without the use of central bank dollar reserves? Absolutely. In fact, that's, the, that's our major issue here. Again, that's why I talk about the zoo, the, the, the period before the, the crisis where there were no bank reserves. There were no Federal Reserve tokens. They were practically nothing. And so what's settled in the uh, euro dollar system privately, organically, are these bank liabilities, long chains of bank liabilities that stretch all around the world that are called dollars. And the only reason they're called dollars is because banks on both sides of each transaction, or sometimes in groups, these ad hoc networks that we see in the SWIFT data, um, these ad hoc networks, these banks that engage in these off offshore dollar transactions, so long as they all agree that these are dollars, even though it's all virtual, there's no actual physical currency here, then they're dollars. It has nothing to do with the U.S. It has nothing to do with the Federal Reserve. It has nothing to do with the U.S. government. It's simply banks agree that, oh, these are dollars. These are dollar claims. This is a dollar asset. And it gets settled because that's how the banking system has evolved. We don't need physical currency. We don't need the Federal Reserve, Federal, uh, Federal Reserve Bank Reserves. What, what, all that was required was a couple banks to get together and say, 
I have this, you have this, our numbers match at the end of the day, therefore dollars. That is a, a frequent question and a point of disbelief that I come across in the YouTube comments is that the system operated without reserves for decades and it operated perfectly fine and the economy grew without reserves. Yeah, and it's this concept we, we talk about where we're starting to, to, to differentiate between public reserves, which is the Fed, what the Fed has done, and these private reserves. And I struggle with the, the term private reserves because, you know, it's sort of a misnomer too. It's confidence. Com exactly. It's always confidence. Money is always confidence. <laughs> Robert Miller, May 9th. Why? Would anybody be buying Japanese or European bonds when they could be buying U.S. Treasuries, Jeff? Well, I mean, it's not everybody needs U.S. Treasuries, and sometimes you need euro-denominated collateral. Uh, so if, if, you, if you're a bank that's engaged in the eurozone, you got to have, you know, you, you got to have euro-denominated collateral in order to participate in euro money markets. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a strict portfolio investment consideration as it is, again, think about these things from the perspective of a bank and a bank operation, therefore it's balance sheet requirements. And so as a balance sheet requirement, if you're a bank that does a lot of business in Europe, you're gonna need euros. You can't just strictly invest in dollars. You're gonna need negative yielding euro collateral to participate in euro denominated repo markets so that you can run your repo operation, your European repo operations, so that you can run your European credit operations too. Next question comes from Mr. Sherman, May 10th, Christopher Sherman. How would the reserves become animated? We often say these things are inert. How could they become animated? Well, if the banking system went back to being stupid and insane, then <laughs> I suppose the level of public reserves would be somewhat useful. But even then, I, I, I hesitate to say that because, um, again, uh, it's not, it's the central bank offering reserves, even in the way the Fed does it, is not a substitute for a dynamic marketplace. A dynamic marketplace means I can go into the market and almost any kind of need I'll get or any, any kind of need that I have, somebody somewhere is willing to offer me some kind of financial product for it, whether it's a funding product, a credit product, you know, the, the blurred lines between money and credit. But the dynamic marketplace supply before the, before the crisis almost anything you could imagine, any kind of requirement that you had. And so, you know, the banking system was part of that, that marketplace and funding a lot of it, you know, based upon these public reserves that the Fed creates, you know, the Fed operates so bureaucratically, so rigidly, it's not a dependable source of funding. And so it's already a hindrance to banks being reckless as we need them to be. Uh, as long as the system is, remains as it is, we need them to be reckless. They're, they're not going to depend upon the Federal Reserve to be a significant part of a dynamic marketplace to be de a dependable source of funding so that banks start doing all those kinds of things again. Everybody knows how Jay Powell operates. The Fed comes up with a list of securities, the list of securities they're going to buy. They think about these level of reserves according to their, their funky little curves that they draw and all of their models, and they have all sorts of regressions that tell them this is the right number of reserves for you, and if you don't like it, God damn it, it doesn't matter. We're doing what we're doing. That's not, a, that's not a substitute for the dynamic marketplace, which used to take place before the global financial crisis. And as a result, you know, even, if, even if banks were, were going to use um, these bank reserves that are otherwise inert, 
it's an impediment to them thinking, you know, we're not, we're not going to depend upon these as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a big source of funding going forward. As an emergency source, as a last-ditch liability when no other liabilities are available, sure. But as a dependable source of funding to do these kinds of credit-based activities that get the economy going again, get inflation going again, nah, it's not happening. These things are inert. And for the YouTube algorithms, I just want to emphasize that Jeff said funky with an N. Jeff, our next question comes from Tim Paylor, mid, uh, mid-May. And I believe what you just said applies here as well in the idea that we're looking for a dynamic marketplace that is providing liquidity. It's like when you go to a restaurant, you don't go to the kitchen and just grab some milk and uh, some cheese and make your own uh, Alfredo sauce, right? You have the specialist that creates a customized meal for you. And it's not the same thing if they brought heavy cream, uh, salt, and cheese to your table. And that's what I think Tim Paylor is asking here is, if, what if we had asset managers like PIMCO, if they joined the primary dealers, and what if we had them own the mortgage-backed securities? What if we you know, uh, followed these convoluted uh, special purpose vehicles and we set it up in such, a, in such a way? Would liquidity reach Main Street? Would zombies, the zombie companies, continue to pay out wages? And would retirees see higher balances in their pensions? And would this somehow make the real economy go? Well, I think the issue, the, the, the main issue that I think the, the question is getting at is this bank versus non-bank channel. And it's true. The banking system, the banking channel for money, collateral, repo, all, this, all these, these, all these uh, uh, subjects we talk about, that's been the primary impact. That's been the primary drag, the anchor upon the financial system and global economy. Uh, ever since 2008, however, the non-bank channel, which is not necessarily asset managers, but these other types of, of financial entities and agencies, they have continued to grow. They continue to expand. And so you have, you have the, the, the sort of a confluence between the, the still sinking of the financial channel with the still rising of the non-financial channel. And if one overtakes the other, theoretically, you could have a system where, okay, the, the, the drag from the financial channel isn't, is no longer as much as it used to be. It's being outweighed by this increase in the non-financial channel which then starts to create more of the same kind of function. And I, I'm hugely skeptical about that because the non-bank channel, whether it's asset managers or other types of vehicles, they don't provide the same types of service. Again, it's the same argument I just made, which is central banks don't do the things that, that money dealer banks do. Non-banks uh, along the same lines don't do the same types of activities that dealer banks used to do very quite heavily. And so I don't know how you replicate all of those kinds of functions, not just replicate the functions, but do them in the same way, to the same degree, to the same level of efficiency and activity, depth, liquidity, infrastructure, all these kinds of things that bank, the banking system used to do and put them in a non-bank format. I don't think it gets done, certainly not easily, and I, don't, I think it's probably not a realistic option. So you have some of the, some of the burden of money and finance being taken by the non-bank channel but as we've seen over the last dozen years, as much as the, the two, two lines are moving in opposite directions, 
it hasn't moved the needle as far as the economy and these, these continuous euro dollar and dollar shortages go. Jeff Snyder, head of global research. You can find him at uh, on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. He writes daily for Alhambra Investments, and you can find his weekly blog post at Real Clear Markets as well. And Rohan S has a question to you that I suppose the core of it is why is inflation always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon? Because we think about inflation as goods. So a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Japan and how they had very low inflation. And Rohan very correctly points out, well, China was flooding the world with cheap goods. Doesn't the supply of cheap goods result in low inflation? Jeff, when, when does supply and demand of goods impact inflation and why did Friedman and also Greenspan say that inflation is always a monetary phenomenon? Well, what China did is absolutely nothing new in history. I mean, economic progress throughout history has been, quote unquote, flooding the markets with brand new goods at cheaper prices. That's what we call economic progress. That's productive deflation, which is capitalism. It's the, it's the success of capitalism, which brings down through economy of scale, through the marriage of labor and capital and innovation and all of these positive aspects that it brings down the cost of goods such that they become widely available to a larger and larger market. Rising living standards, productive deflation. That's inherent in the background behind everything we do. But yet, as we see throughout history, we have these bouts of inflation. So there are definitely something beyond this background productive deflation that causes inflationary breakouts. And that, that thing is called money. Further than that, we have these, these very stark periods where we have deflationary breakouts that is distinct and different from productive deflation, which is that capitalism rising living standard stuff, economies of scale. The, product, the non-productive deflation, which John Maynard Keynes correctly identified as the worst of all evils, is where money becomes so tight that regular folks have to sell their possessions just to raise cash so that they can buy food. That's the kind of deflation that we saw in the 1930s where because banking system, bank, you know, local banks disappeared and they absconded with your money, with your cash, people were left to sell. And not just people, businesses, everybody had to kept, they kept what they called undercutting the natural order of business so that prices kept falling and falling and falling, all because everybody wanted to scramble to hold liquid currency as the system, as the system reversed. So you have productive deflation, which is always in the background, you have these monetary deflation and monetary inflation, which over time, economists and central banks in particular have decided, we'll, we'll shoot for a little bit of monetary inflation so that we have some kind of cushion so that we never experience monetary deflation again. And of course, it, it's a stupid idea, but that, that's really what, 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 uh, what undercuts and what underpins modern monetary thinking is the idea that a little bit of monetary inflation is good so that we have a cushion against monetary deflation, understanding that throughout history, there's productive deflation behind everything. We have our very first Terminator that is joining us, the JBNS 4000, also on Twitter, at JBNS 4000. And the Terminator wants to know, why is the Fed purchasing mortgage-backed securities? Is it to create liquidity 
in the MBS market or to buy it as collateral to inject cash to needy market participants? Well, I think the, the point behind the question might be, you know, there really doesn't seem to be a problem in the mortgage market. So why would the Fed be buying MBS again? And the answer is really two, two, there's two parts to the answer. The first part is, well, they got to buy something. Again, it's, it's the central bank being bureaucratic. What, the, what, what Jay Powell and his gang got together and said, we've got to raise a level of reserves to X. In order for us to lay, raise our level of reserves to X, we've got to buy assets. And they can't buy every treasury. They can't buy every this or every that. This, you know, the Bank of Japan problem where you start buying everything. So they have to spread out their purchases so they're not dominating any particular marketplace. Ironically, they do that even though their second part of the answer here is they want to show their support for the MBS market because that's part of the puppet show and the psychological games going on here. They're trying to, to, to create this idea that there's a broad level of support for every single market, whether it needs it or not. So the Fed's going to purchase MBS, going to purchase corporate bond ETFs, although not much of those. It's going to purchase all of these types of assets so that the idea gets planted far and wide that, hey, we're supporting every financial, we're, we're supporting the whole damn system. We've got it all covered. So it's two things. They need, they need to buy some kind of assets to raise the level of bank reserves. And secondly, they've got to, they've got to appear to support every single market given the, the level of problem that we're facing here. We're gonna travel from the future, from our Terminator, back to the past, all the way to Norway, Mr. Fleming Solvstad Nielsen. Jeff, can you pronounce that middle name? No, I have no idea. Well, it looks fantastic. Jeff, he's asking, he's asking does the Fed is the Fed violating the Federal Reserve Act, uh, buying these high-yield risky bonds? And I suppose more to the point, do they care? Do they even listen to their own warnings from yesteryear? As, you know, do, the rule was set up, don't buy these high-risk uh, high bonds because it's, it's dangerous. But do they care? Are they listening to their own rules? No, and you got to understand the Fed has gone through several, several kinds of evolutions and several waves of evolution since its founding. And when it was originally set up in 1913 throughout the 1920s, it adhered to something called the Real Bills Doctrine, which said that you know, the Fed should only, should only be funding real economic activity, should have nothing to do with speculation, stay away from all that stuff. We don't need to be funding on any of those kinds of things. So yes, before 1930, before the Great Depression, the Fed, you know, kind of adhered to a real bills doctrine, but not really. But since the Great Depression, the Fed had, you know, in the early 1930s, the Fed was completely reorganized. It, it didn't, you know, in some ways it operated as 12 regional central banks rather than a single central bank under unified structure. And when it went to the, the single, that we recognize today, the single unified structure that they have in the 19, early 1930s, they recognized that, you know, maybe the Fed's, the, the, the Fed's, um, main job might be what, what uh, Walter Badgett used to say, which is to support liquidity across other markets. And we shouldn't be making determinations about what credits are risky and what credits are speculative and what credits are real bills and those kinds of things. And so they amended Section 13 of the Federal Reserve Act. They amended actually specifically the third paragraph that allowed them these broad emergency powers, 13-3. 13, 13 and under 13-3, 
it basically says, yeah, we, we want to be a responsible central bank. We want to do things that are, you know, we're not, we don't want to be encouraging speculation. We want to do things that look, appear to be prudent. However, we realize in an emergency situation, we're just going to do whatever the hell we want anyway. And that's really what 13-3 says is, under an emergency, we have brought, we've granted, the Congress has extended to the Federal Reserve. Remember, this is Congress has legitimately extended to the Federal Reserve broad emergency powers, which the Fed uh, exercised for the first time in 2008. Um, the uh, J.P. Morgan merger with Bear Stearns fell under 13-3. It had no previous statutory authority to do that kind of thing for you. So yeah, the Fed appears to be, wants to appear to be a prudent steward of the currency system. However, it is legally authorized to do things that probably, you know, the, as the questioner is, is shaking his head at, you know, speculative instruments, these kinds of, you know, high yield junk bonds. Why is the Fed in that, in the, in that space buying those kinds of things? And the answer is because they judge this as an emergency where what we saw in March was a breakdown in that, especially that part of the marketplace, which had enormously destructive monetary effects. Therefore, okay, even though it's junk bonds, because we saw that breakdown, we can't let that happen again. So we're going to buy a bunch of junk bonds so that everybody has the idea or we give everybody the idea that we're supporting that market. Whether we are, whether they are or not is a completely different question. From the Fed's perspective, they're doing this to support that market so we don't see that kind of dislocation again. And yes, it is authorized. It is absolutely positively legal. Whether it's prudent, whether it's wise, those are completely separate questions. Whether it's effective. <laughs> If any of our uh, listeners want to ask uh, some questions, you can get a hold of me at Emil Kalinowski, and I'll take down your questions. I'll try to answer them, and if I can't, I'll take them down and add them to our next mailbag show, which we're hoping to do regularly once every four weeks. Our next question comes from Usper Krepus, who just goes by Ivan, and he gave us a multiple-choice question which is original, that's great. Jeff, everyone wants to know what is going on with the stock market. Is the current S&P miraculous V a case of A, fear of missing out by the dip mentality, all out of delusion, B, preparation for a currency crisis because people rather hold stock of US dollar earning good companies, or C, question mark, or D, more question marks? I would say it's a combination of A, C, and D. <laughs> now, let's start with A. A, I think, you know, the by the dip mentality is very deeply ingrained. I mean, you saw, I don't know if anybody, you know, Robin, the Robinhood app um, is a good example. I think it was the CEO or one of the, one of the high level executives gave an, uh, an interview not long ago where he said, we had all of these millions of users sign up for the Robinhood app to, you know, to, to get our commissionless trades in the stock market, but they, they never used their account. When we asked them, why, why aren't you using your Robinhood account? You know, we've got all of these benefits for you. Why, not, why aren't you jumping into the stock market? What they said was, "Your stocks were too expensive. They were just waiting for stocks to become cheaper, which just so happened to, to occur in uh, the first half of March. And so all of these people who have been judging stocks as expensive saw the sell-off in March and said, that made stocks cheap. Therefore, let's start buying it. It's buy the biggest dip that we've seen in, what, 12 years. That's what happens. So yes, buy the dip is one. Fear the missing out is definitely part of it. Now, C, I would say, is this, this, this signal that we you and I had talked about, Emil, 
where the Federal Reserve's main target for its monetary policies is not the banking system, it's not even bank reserves itself, it's to portfolio and fund managers out there to say, we're going to give you a rationale so that you buy stocks, so that you get the prices of stocks up to signal to consumers that everything's great, to signal to businesses that everything is awesome. And the reason that they do that is because most people in the financial services industry want to buy. They want to buy. They're desperate to buy. And when they get into these periods where they, they, they well, maybe we shouldn't buy, they're, what they're really afraid of is angry clients calling them and saying, why the hell are you buying stocks when everything's a mess? What they can now say is, Jay Powell told me to. Jay Powell's got it covered, man. He is supporting the stock market. Well, how is he? I don't know how he's supporting. He's just doing it. It's happening. The Greenspan put. And so the Federal Reserve is providing this massive cover for the financial services industry to do what it wants to do best, which is buy, buy, buy. And that's what it's been doing. Portfolio and fund managers have been buying like crazy because now they have what sounds like legitimate cover to do so. There's no risk. Jay Powell said so. And the fourth thing is, I think we're in this period where we don't really see the future. We're focusing entirely on the short run. And in the short run, things are look awesome, as we saw with the payroll report. It's, oh my God, you know, we made it. We got through the worst of this. You know, it wasn't so, this is it. I mean, it sounded like this was going to turn into apocalypse now, or apocalypse America, where, you know, the zombies were going to take over. And all of a sudden, it looks like, hey, we might actually go back to normal here. And so we have this survivor's euphoria taking hold on top of all these other things where nobody's really looking at what comes next after the euphoria. How badly are we really hurt from what just happened? And there's a sense that, well, there's no damage, no pain, no nothing. We're going to go right back to normal. That has taken over the mainstream narrative. And it all gets mixed together into one big ball, right? An indistinguishable knot where it's, the stock market's up, things are looking better. So there's, there's absolutely no way that anything could possibly be wrong. And the thing is, you see these, these types of periods happen throughout history, especially in crisis periods where, you know, euphoria takes over for whatever reason, it clings to whatever, whatever rationale is, is present at any given time. And it can go for a very long way. And I think it's, it's premature celebration. I think people don't really appreciate the fact that the economy has been really seriously long run damaged here. And furthermore, Jay Powell has got nothing supported. It's all a fairy tale and a myth. And so long, as long as people believe it, it can continue. But as soon as people start doubting it, like they did in March, like they did in August of 2007, it just crumbles underneath because it's revealed as nothing more than a hollow Potemkin village. And for those of you who don't know your early Soviet history, we could also make the analogy to Wiley Coyote walking on air. And as long as he doesn't look down, he can keep walking. Our last two questions concern the same idea, and that's the 1970s and inflation. Jeff, we've got one question from St. Lucille, another from Johan Kirsten. And it's just, can you talk a little bit about the 1970s stagflation? It's linked to the euro dollar system. And where did inflation in the 1970s come from? Well, let's start with the second question. For where, did the, where did the great inflation come from? And it's, it's the conventional explanation is a couple of things. One was, um, you know, the, the fiscal side of it, spending with the Vietnam War, uh, great society, deficits started to become a bigger part of American life again for the first time since World War II. And the Federal Reserve was committed to financing those 
much the same way that people accuse it of now, where it would have to increase the level of money in the system so that banks could buy all of this debt that was being, that was being sold by the government to finance Vietnam and, and the, uh, the war on poverty and things like that. And then there's, uh, there was also the intellectual foundation of you know, Samuelson and Soloff who said that there was this exploitable Phillips curve, that if we tolerate a little bit of inflation, we'll be able to bring unemployment down even further. It's almost like you could just, you know, you could purchase more employment with higher inflation and you could do so in a very controlled and predictable manner. So you had the combination of those things where in the conventional explanation of the intellectual foundation that we tolerate inflation, so we have lower employment and we allow this deficit spending and the monetary component that goes along with it, it suddenly became this uncontrolled monster by the late 60s, which we call the great inflation, that continued all the way into the early 1980s. Now, my view is a little bit different than all that. I think the, the Samuelson Sola uh, part of it is absolutely a big, big part of the explanation, but so is something else called benign neglect, which also relates to something Paul Samuelson said, which was we had this global monetary flood, a real monetary flood, that happened outside the purview of the mainstream view, which was, you know, euro dollars, not just euro dollars, but also other forms of money that made, that rendered the traditional monetary definitions moot by the, you know, long before the early 1970s when the Fed started talking about it. I mean, go back to William Abbott in 1961, I think it was, who started, he said, you know, we got to reorder the monetary statistics M1 through M5. This is 1961. So you had monetary evolution, however you want to describe it. And we could, we could spend a lot of time on this topic. But for me, it was the monetary evolution, the combination of benign neglect or what Triffin called his paradox. All of these things combined into where you had this monetary free-for-all, qualitative as well as quantitative expansion in all kinds of ways. And it, didn't, it, did, it, it did so in a manner that authorities had no idea what was going on, no idea how to handle it. And that's why it got out of control. That's the short answer. Now, I think the second question relates to, does, are we, are, can we get this, does this kind of situation happen again? Are we heading in that direction? And I think what, this, what differentiates the 1960s from the 2010s and 2020s is the monetary deflationary background behind it all. You have banking systems who in the, in the 50s and 60s were just itching to do more, whereas in the, the, the 2010s and 2020s, as we've said before, they only want to do less. They want to take fewer and fewer risks, not more and more risk. Thank you, Jeff. And just to, for our audience to show that we don't edit everything uh, on this show, it just happens live unless somebody passes out, is uh, I'm going to leave in that comment I made about Mr. Potemkin. I mistook that for early Soviet history, and I was only oh, it's off. Much earlier. Much yeah, earlier. I was only off by a century or two. That was the 18th century. Yes, that's Tsarist Russia. It's very embarrassing, but I'm going to leave it in, and we'll have all the Russians make fun of me on Twitter, on YouTube. Jeff, thank you very much. I'll see you again next week. Take care, Emil.